Well, I think that I am really amazing at giving gifts. However, if you ask my wife, who is the recipient of many of these gifts, she will tell you that I'm not quite as good as I think that I am. My problem is that I really like surprises. So when I think about giving gifts, I want to give you something that you're not expecting, something that you haven't asked me for. But my wife would just like me to give her exactly what was on the list of gifts that she would like to receive, because that's why it's on the list. So here's how this song and dance goes every time, is Brie will give me her list of here's the things that I want, and then I take that as, okay, that's going to get me thinking of all the other things that I need to get, because I'm not going to get you anything on your list. I've got to find you something else. So I go through, and I, I think, and I research, and I do all my study, and then I finally find something that I think is going to be amazing. She won't expect it at all. It's going to be great. It's going to blow her away. And I buy it, send it, it's shipped. And then I just start kind of strutting around the house, getting very excited about this thing that I've gotten for her. And usually it won't take long before I'll tell her, oh, got you a gift today. You're going to love it. It's going to be awesome. Well, what is it? Oh, just want to surprise you. I want to surprise you. And so then all the time I'm waiting for it to come or for her birthday or Christmas, I'm just building up suspense and excitement for myself. If I just can't wait until she sees this gift. It's going to blow her away. And almost every time she'll end up opening it up and she'll kind of roll her eyes or give me a little smile and go, wow, that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> go, oh, is this, is this not the most amazing gift you ever got? She's like, well, I mean, it's okay. Why didn't you... Just get what I asked you to get me. And so sometimes I, in the past, have had to return it, or other times it's okay, it's not the worst gift, but it's really just, why did you just do what was on the list? And so that happened recently, and it's going to happen again, because I really just refuse to learn my lesson, because I think I'm good at this. But maybe you're like me, and maybe sometimes you struggle with figuring out what's the right gift to get. Or you don't always know what you're supposed to do. Well, this passage, I think now we're coming to the very end, we're at the very last chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we've been working through it slowly since the end of January. So you can re rejoice or feel accomplished, we finished it, or at least almost. But this passage gives us three gifts that we are supposed to give. And they're really three gifts that God gives us that we then in turn are supposed to go and to give others. So if you'd go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And you'll see as you look, if you're like I challenge you or encourage you to do, to read the chapters ahead of time before you come to church so you can be ready. You may have read it and wondered, well, what in the world is Pastor going to talk about? This kind of seems like all the ends of Paul's letters. When we get to these, sometimes we can just start skimming and hurry on to the next thing. Like, okay, I don't know these names, can't pronounce them. What's going on here? Well, I want to encourage us. I'm going to try and show you what is going on here. Some passages, all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is instructive and useful. Some things are easier to read than others, though. And some of them we have to do more work. We have to put more effort into figuring out and deciphering what is it that God has to tell us. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to read it. I encourage you, if you are able, to stand as we do. If you are not, please do not feel bad. Um, but just read and follow along with us. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. And on the first day of every week, which would be Sunday, each of you should put aside something and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. 
And I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will even stay with you or maybe even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me where there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as am I. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanias were the first comforts in Achua, and they, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and let every fellow worker and laborer. For I rejoice at the coming of Stephanias and Fortunus and Achaius, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches in Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All of the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. For I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for the opportunity to read it. To, to proclaim it, to get to listen to it, and to worship you this morning. I pray that you will just come here, be in this room, that you will give me your words, that you will help us to be attentive, that you will help us to hear your voice. Would your Holy Spirit soften our hearts and open our ears to hear what it is you have to say. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can be seated. So there are three gifts that, that Paul tells the church in Corinth that really they are to give, and I think they're also for us. And so the first gift is, if you're taking notes in your point, is that we should give God's money away. Is that we should give God's money away. And so as you hear it, I'm going to talk about money a little bit this morning. This is one of the things that we kind of don't talk about very often at TBF, right? Or we've kind of avoided talking about it in the past, and I, I like that. I'm really uncomfortable with how often some places or some churches or some television ministries and things seem to talk about money all the time. And it almost gives you the impression that that's one of the most important things or even more important than the gospel. Or it can seem as if the really the most important thing is enriching the pockets of the pastor so he can go buy a new fancy jet or, you know, whatever the next building campaign thing is. And so that's wrong. I, I think that, that is bad if that's all you're ever talking about. But we, we need to, like anything, we have to avoid pendulum swinging back and forth. Well, they talk about it too much, so I'm going to never talk about it at all, and that's going to fix it. Because bad teaching isn't fixed by no teaching. Bad teaching is fixed by good teaching. Right, so we, we have to do that. And so I don't want to talk about money all the time, and I won't, but I'm not going to ignore it when it comes up in God's Word. This is one of the reasons I'm convicted of expository preaching, and I try and preach verse by verse and chapter by chapter and through whole books of the Bible because it makes me preach on stuff that I don't want to preach about, which is why very often as we went through 1 Corinthians, I thought, why in the world did I pick this book? There's a lot of stuff in here I do not want to preach on. But I did it, right? Because we, we need to talk about things, and that's why we do it, because 
Otherwise, if we just read, we just preach what we want to, then we never get convicted of all the things that we need to talk about. So every week I don't sit there and decide, well, what I want to say this week, it's, well, what does God's Word say? What does He want to tell us as a church this week? So we're going to talk about money a little bit. And what Paul tells them in the beginning of verse 1 where he's telling them concerning the collection of taking up money is, I directed the churches of Galatia, you're also to do. And so the first day of the week, which would be on Sunday, each of you is to put aside, get something. They're to kind of take up this collection fairly often. It seems like there's some kind of gathering or offering. We don't know they're necessarily passing a plate, but this is where that tradition comes from. Of Well, look here, it seems like they're kind of doing that. And what he does is he doesn't want to do a big fundraiser when he comes. So he's saying, set it aside, be doing this every week so that when I come, I don't have to set up a big tent and, and pound the drums and start asking for all sorts of money. Because if you remember way back earlier in Corinthians, we talked about how that was what Paul really didn't want to do. He didn't want them to pay him. Because of the way that the city of Corinth is very obsessed with money, and that's what other preachers and other people and other teachers would do. And he's trying to avoid that. So he's saying, hey, put that money before I come, because I don't want to have to talk about it when I get there. But he also seems to be saying that we're, one of the things I think he's saying here is that our giving really should also just be methodical and repeated. It should become one of those natural rhythms of our lives where we aren't just giving every now and then or when there's a big thing or someone comes and knocks on the door, but that we should continually be giving God's money away all the time. And you see, too, that he tells them that I'm telling you to do this just like I told the churches in Galatia. So this is something Paul appears to be telling at least two churches in two cities. You can kind of assume if he's telling two of them, then he's probably telling more of them. Maybe he's telling all of them. This is a normal thing that Paul is doing and instructing the churches to do. And so what is going on here? What is this money for? Well, part of this money is significant. It's going to, in verse 3, when I'm arrived, I'm going to gather that up and write a letter, and I'm going to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So they are getting this money, and they're putting it together not to pay their elders, not to pay, their, not to pay Paul, not to support his ministry. It's actually going to other churches and other believers in Jerusalem. Because at this point, there appears to be a famine that's going on. They're... The churches there are struggling, are hungry, and are in need. And so Paul's instructing these churches, hey, put aside money, give away some of the money God's given you, and then we're going to give it not to bless your church and make your church better. We're just going to send it to other churches and other places that God is doing. It's also significant to note that, again, this is a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church made up of not many Jews, taking their hard-earned money that they deserve and sending it to help a Jewish church. And the Jews and Gentiles don't get along. And they're not natural friends. So this isn't just we're sending this to the churches that are just like us that we like the most. It's we're sending these to other churches, those outside of our group. And so Paul says that, you know, he's going to endorse it too. He's going to sign a letter just letting them know, hey, here, here's this gift. Here's why. Here it is. You know, this is from believers that I know and I love and I respect. So it's not just supposed to be just sending them a check. It also seems to be some kind of development or the beginning of a relationship. Just like we would have, you know, haven't been able to do that much over the last year. This, that's kind of changed, but just like last Wednesday, we had a missionary come and tell us just about his work and what he's done. 
And missionaries do that when they come back and they go and they visit the churches that support them because you don't just want to send a check and then get a letter every now and then. You're hoping you're developing a relationship as you're both working towards the gospel. And so that's some of what Paul is kind of going on here. So the question can be, or a question often is when it comes to this as well, how much should we give? And you notice Paul doesn't tell them. He doesn't give them a number. But I like numbers. Numbers are easy. I like rules. I like guidelines, unless my wife gives me a list of things to buy, then I don't like that. I reject some of them, but normally I like them. And so normally what we have, right, is you hear 10%, right, or the tithe, which is really what tithe means, is a tenth. So we should give a tenth or 10%. And it's a good guideline, but it's not really a command in Scripture for us, at least now as New Testament believers. And if you look at the Old Testament, they actually gave much more than 10%. We want to go, well, that sounds good. They gave that in the Old Testament. Well, and we, and we debate and we argue over, well, what exactly is the number? It's at least 10. It's more than 10. It's probably as high as 30%, actually, is how much they're giving. Because they would give 10% of, they give a tenth of all their stuff to God. Then they also require to give a tenth to the priests. And then they also would have another every three years to give another offering towards the poor or those who are in need. So you can do the math, you can go Deuteronomy 14, kind of look at that, study it a little more for yourself, see if you can parse it out. So they were giving a lot away. Also in the New Testament, what, you know, we're set free. We don't have to follow the Mosaic law. We can eat bacon, we can eat pork, we can, we can do different things. But as often we see, it doesn't mean that we don't have to give anything anymore. I think the wrong question is, well, how little do I have to give? Give me the number so I know, okay, as long as I give that, I'm good. Check the box. Not in sin anymore. Woohoo. Really what it appears to be in the New Testament is God tells us to give even more. We should be more generous because Jesus has set us free, not less generous. Right? And, but I do think that, so the question isn't just how little, but I think it's, well, how much can I give? Because it's all God's. Everything that we have is a gift that God has given us, and it's His. And that's part of why He commanded the Israelites and still wants us to give things away, because it is not ours. Everything is on loan. We're just stewards of what God has given us. And so when we refuse to give God back anything, we are like a child who refuses to give their parents one of their french fries. Say, no, these are mine. You can't have this. Boy, I bought those. You don't know. I'm going to have one of your fries because that's mine. That's how often what our attitude can be when it comes to our things, our possessions, our money is, no, 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 God, this is my money. If I give you some, I'm going to have less money and I, I, I need it. I have things that I need to do. That's the wrong attitude. And so what I think when it thinks about this is one of the things that I think is good, I think it's good for our giving to be regular. It's good for us to repeatedly be giving the money that God has given us away. Whether that's at the church, here, shouldn't just be here either. We should be giving other places. should be giving to missionaries, as many of you I know do. should be giving to causes in our community. We should be giving to the poor that are among us. We, we should be always and continually be generous. We should hold the money that God gives us with open hands. But I think it's good to, for it to be regular because if we just leave it up to the moment, if we just leave it up to our emotions, I'll just wait till I feel like God convicts me that I should give. Well, what I notice when I've done that is God doesn't convict me that often. There's a lot of times that my emotions don't lead me to give. I don't really think I need to right now. 
But when we do it continually, it, it helps and it trains us and we're supposed to. So like if I'm just waiting for when I feel like I need to go work out and run, what I notice is I don't feel like doing that very often either. <laughs> but it's good for me. I'm supposed to do it. So that's why I think it's a good thing that we should be continually, rhythmically giving some of God's money away. Because as we do that, if we find ourselves doing that at least once a week, it will become a more natural part of our lives. It will help teach us that we are supposed to give. And it also, when it, when it comes to this, I don't want to say, here's the number. Ten's good. You want to go with that? Great. If you want to go more than that? Awesome. You go less than that? Okay. But what I do think is it probably should be a sacrifice at some point. If all we're doing is giving God our scraps or the pennies that we find on the ground and say, here you go, God, that's not, that doesn't seem very generous. It doesn't seem like we're acknowledging that it's his either. And we also see what, what Paul says in two. He's saying, okay, store it aside as he may prosper. So it's as you are prospering yourself financially, as you're getting paid as you're doing well, as God's giving you and blessing you, you should then give more out of that. I think it's helpful to think of it, for myself at least, of, well, what would be a sacrifice to give? Ask myself, well, how much do I want to give? And then, uh, well, okay, I should probably give more than that. should give enough that it hurts a little bit. And that's just, that's not necessarily from God, but that's just, that's, that's for me. That's the way that I try and think about it, because I find that more helpful. I think it's, if it's all God's, we should be thinking and, and looking for how much of it can we give away, not how little. And one, one thing that I've heard, I heard this um, story of a, a couple that when they got married, they decided they were going to start right away giving 10% of their, their money to God. That whatever they got, they were in a 10% and give that away. But then here's what they did. They decided every year when their anniversary came, they would give one more percent. And they would just keep going and trust God to take care of them. And so they did. And then eventually as they're married for 40 plus years, they're giving half of their money away to the Lord and to churches and to ministries. And God provided for them. I think that's a good model. That's not necessarily a rule. That's what we should do. But it's a good example of giving methodically and continually increasing as we prosper, making sure that our giving is still a sacrifice. Anyway, that, that's, so first, we should give God's money away. It's all His. It's not ours. And hold it with open hands. The second thing that I think we need to give away is we should give God's ministry away. We should give God's ministry away. Well, you see when you look at these, and you notice at the end of many of Paul's letters, Paul did not do ministry alone. Paul was not by himself doing all of these things, writing all of these letters, planting all of these churches. I mean, we love the myth of the Lone Ranger, right? If some of you remember, remember that show or, or things like that. That's kind of our American mythos is the, the lone individual going into the fray, conquering everything, building the business by themselves, doing it all on their own with their own strength, genius, moxie, hard work, whatever. That's what, we like that. Those are the books we buy, the movies that we watch, or the people we, we elevate and we get excited to read about because they did it all themselves. Look at that. That's not how Paul did that. It's really not how anybody does that either. That's just a, a myth that we like to, to embrace. But you can think of, 
If you look at this and you look at all of these names that Paul mentions, he mentions Timothy, he mentions Apollos, he mentions Stephanias and Fortunus and Achaius and Aquila and Priscilla. Those are just people recently that have helped him with his ministry. And what we see is Paul shares credit. Okay, Paul is not interested in the church in Corinth thinking that he's the greatest apostle in the world. He's not interested in them thinking that he's doing it all on his own. If you look at, especially the first two mentioned names that he mentions, it's also significant. First, he mentions Timothy, which is somebody that we know he was mentoring, treating like a son. This is somebody he's raising up, and like anyone does when you're mentoring someone, you kind of eventually, maybe you hope they take over, or they do even better than you. That's what Paul's doing. He's not raising them up and thinking, well, Timothy's getting too big for his britches. I've got to knock him down a peg. I don't want him to come take over my ministry. I want to do it. No, he's saying, hey, here's Timothy. Please help him. In verse 11, don't let anyone despise him. Don't look down on him. Treat him like you would treat me. And he also mentions Apollos. In 12, which over and over throughout this letter, the church in Corinth has put Paul and Apollos as butting heads, or there seems to be people who like Apollos more or like Paul more. It's almost like they're supposed to be rivals or competitors. That's not the way Paul talks about Apollos. Paul says, man, I really, I'm trying to beg Apollos to come visit you guys because I know he, he really matters to you. And he's too busy right now. Some people think maybe he's too busy because he wants them to shape up and Stop sinning as much, and then when they get their stuff in gear, then Apollos will come and visit. That could be what it is. But the important thing, I think, is that Paul cares enough about Apollos that he sees him as a ministry partner, not as his competition. And Paul needed help himself in his own ministry. He's asking them in verse 6, hey, I'm hoping to come, and I really want to spend a lot of time with you. I want to minister among you, and I want you, verse 6, to help me on my journey. I'm going to need your help. I don't know where I'm going next. Because it's wherever I go, we'll see where the Holy Spirit leads, but I'm going to need your help as I do it. He's not a lone ranger on himself. We also, if you notice in 21 where it says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul didn't write this letter to the church in Corinth even by himself. He had help. Now, it doesn't mean there's another author. He's the author, but he probably had a scribe who's dictating to it. Maybe Paul's handwriting wasn't very good. Because there's a, another place, one of the other letters that mentions, hey, I write this as, you know, my own hand, as you can kind of tell, these letters are pretty big. <laughs> you can tell Paul's handwriting. So he had somebody help him write this. Now, he's still overseeing it. He's looking at it. He's reading it. All the words are Paul's, but he didn't handwrite all of them. So even in this, the, this letter is a testament of Paul needing help in ministry. Paul isn't trying to just keep it all to himself. He's willing to share. And this is something that we need to remember as well. As we think about ministry or we think about serving in God's church, so often we can just think of it in terms of, what, well, what can I do? Or what's my lane? What's my area of serving? What's my ministry? What's my place? And then we can kind of tend to guard it or not want to let other people in. Well, I don't want you to help me run the slide. Well, I do that. that. That's my thing. If I let you do it, then I can't do it anymore. Then I don't have anything. Well, I, I, I play the piano. I, I sing. If I let you sing, then I, what if I can't sing anymore? But what we need to do, and what I love seeing our worship team, there's enough people involved now that we're rotating. There's not the same people singing every week. That's amazing. And that's good. 
That's the right attitude to have. It, you know, it, there's weeks that you're going to want to sing and you're not going to be able to sing because other people need to sing. And that stinks, but that's amazing to get to share the ministry because it's not yours. It's not mine. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's God's church. And we're meant to do it together, to share it, to not just hold it tight as if it's just our own. And that's why all of these things, if you've noticed, I've labeled them God's because it's, it's God's ministry. It's not ours. It's God's ministry. It's not Paul's. That's why he works with the Aquila and Priscilla. And they have their church, and Paul just sees himself as a help to these churches. And he's excited in 17. I rejoice because I've heard that these people have come, Stephanias and Fortunus and Achaia, that they're coming to, to help me. I'm so excited about it. Paul didn't just do ministry by himself, and I don't think that we should either. The third thing, the third gift, is that we should give God's love away. We should give God's love away. We see kind of sandwiched in between all of this in 13 and 14, there's some significant um, phrases. They're short, they're quick, but especially when you get to the end of a letter, that's where if we read them too fast, we can skip over it and miss it. And so I'd encourage you, and later on, this is for free Bible study tips. When you're reading the end of a letter and it's getting to the greetings, look for the little phrases that stick out or are different or commands or instructions, and then stop, read it a couple of times, meditate on it. And so there are 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. There's watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, do everything. There's five verbs, five commands they're all there quickly in those verses. And really what that, that all is is wrapped up, I think, in 14. Let all that you do be done in love. And the fact that the letter ends talking about love as well in 22 and 23, about God's grace in 24 and my love, I think love wraps this up. But we see about love is Paul begins this using warfare language. He's using words to describe not just frilly, happy, you know, just let's sing kumbaya and hug each other and sing, isn't this great? Everybody gets along. He's using language that you would use to tell soldiers, be watchful. watchful. Be like a watchman who's standing on the city walls looking for enemies who are coming to attack and steal and kill everything that you love and care about. And stand firm. Be strong. He's describing is that this kind of love is not easy. It's also giving us the context of our love, that, that the love that we are to have towards others and to have ourselves from God, it takes place in the midst of great spiritual warfare. We often forget that we have an enemy who hates you and who has, who knows how many demons that are at work even now this morning all over our world and in our community and maybe even in this room. I don't know. That that is the context in which we live. 
there's real spiritual things happening, even beneath the surface that we often can't see. And I won't try and predict, oh, there it is. Here's what they're trying to do because I know, because I have no idea. But what we do know is we have an enemy. And so what does Paul tell us? He tells us to be watchful, to be on the lookout, and to stand firm in the faith that even, so whenever whatever comes against you, Whatever spiritual warfare hits you, whatever life brings you, that you should stand firm in the faith. You should stand firm in love. That standing firm means that nothing should be able to knock you over. Just like those trees you see in the midst of a hurricane or huge winds, and they're still there, but they're bending over, hopefully because their roots have gone down deep. That's what he's calling us to do. That the love that we are to have, that we do all of that and we do it still in love. And that's courageous love. It's got to be tough love. But love that endures wrongs. Love that loves our enemies. Love that even when we are wronged, even when people speak ill against us, even when people lie about us, even when people say things about you that offend you and hurt you, that your response is not one of anger, but your response is one of love. But it's still standing firm in the faith. It's really easy to love people who are easy to love. It's really easy to love people who are nice to you. It's really easy to love people that are your children sometimes. It's really easy to love people who are just like you and who like the things that you like and who get annoyed at the same people that you get annoyed with so you can sit and talk about how annoying those people are over there. Those people are easy to love. Those other people are less easy. It's hard to love people that are annoying. It's hard to love people who are difficult. It's hard to love people who are draining. It's really hard to love people that are our enemies and that we hate. But we are called to love those people. That all that we do, every single thing we do, in every arena, in every sphere of life, should be out of love. What do I mean by give God's love away? I mean that the love that God has given us in Jesus, whether He invites, come, sinners, come. That He is in all of us in this room are sinners who are in desperate need of grace. We all really needed Jesus to come and save us. And yet He did. He sent His Son into the world to die on the cross for us. For our sins. Not because we deserved it. Not even because we asked for it. But just because He loved us anyway. Even though there was nothing about us that was deserving of love. And if God has loved us that way... How should we feel towards others for whom God also died? So the love that God has given and pours out to us isn't just something that we keep and hold tight to ourselves, but it's also something we should look for. How can I pass God's love that he's given me on to others? How can I not just share the God? How can I tell people about God's love for them? And I tell them about all that Jesus did for them, all that he feels towards them, how much he cares about them and loves them and the sacrifice that he made for them. It's that, but it's also, well, how can I act towards them as if that's really true as well? 
If this is somebody that God loves enough that they sent, God sent his son Jesus to die for them, maybe I should be kinder to them. Because Jesus died for them. If Jesus hung on that cross for hours, slowly suffocating as he tried to pull himself up as his lungs filled up with blood, for that person that I find really annoying and frustrating, maybe I shouldn't snap at them. Maybe I should treat them as if they're really precious to God as well. Because we've been forgiven much by Jesus, we should also forgive much. That every single thing we do should flow out of love. If the God of the universe, if Jesus has given us such incredible, infinite grace and love, how can that not come out in everything that we do? How could that not flow out in every interaction we have with people? How could we not do every single thing in love? And that's hard. It's good, it's beautiful, but again, I'll admit, that is not easy. That does not come naturally. That is not our default. That is not on autopilot. Okay, I'm tired, I'm a little exhausted because we made a quick trip up to see my parents for one day and then came back down late last night and discovering more how fun it is to drive with two young children. So when I'm exhausted and they're crying and they're screaming and Calvin's telling me he wants to get out of the car seat, are we there yet? I want to go home. Okay, my natural instinct and default is not to be overflowing with the love of God. It's not. It's to snap, to yell at him, it's to get mad at Bree. What does she have to do with it? She's suffering with I am. But... That's what we do, though. And that's why I think Paul tells us these things. It's, okay, do everything in love, but you have to be watchful. You have to stand firm. You have to be strong. And that act like men is not the best translation of that. It's really because it's the warlike language, but it's be courageous. It takes courageous love to, in the midst of something like that, to then respond with someone who's yelling and screaming at you with caring love as if the God of the universe died for them and loves them deeply. That's hard. That takes strength. That takes deep faith. That takes deep love. But that's what Paul calls us to do, that if God has really given and showered us with every good thing from above, including his love and grace, that grace isn't just for me to keep to myself, that grace is for me to shower on all of those around me, especially those that I think don't deserve a drop of it, because I don't either, and you don't either. Everything that we've talked about this morning is really God's. All of our money is really God's money. Our ministry, our jobs, our work, whatever it is that God has given us, it's also His. And all the love that God has given to us, that's also His. It's not ours to hold on to, it's ours to give away. I entitled the sermon, Everything Must Go. Like you see those stores, they're going out of businesses. The ones that are really going out of business, not just pretending to for decades. I'd have a sign that says, everything's got to go. It's all for sale. Well, everything that God has given us, it's not for sale. It's something that should just be given away. Everything that God has given us must go. 
all the money that God has given us, we should hold it loosely and look for how, how much of this can I give away? Maybe I can give away all of it. The, the role, ministry, things God's given me, how can I get other people here involved with me? And the love that God has given me, how can I show this to every single person that I meet? Everything must go. Especially the love of Jesus. I'm going to invite our um, part of our worship team to come up as we transition into communion. I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer. Lord, I just ask that you would help us, Jesus. Uh, Lord, it is hard to follow you some days. Lord, that often what we want to do is I want to hold on with tight hands the things that you have given me. And I don't want to give them away to anybody. And so I, I ask that you would help us, that your Holy Spirit would come and that you would shower and give us even more gifts. You would give us the gift of being able to, to obey your word. And we thank you so much for your love, Jesus for the love that you have poured out on all of us and the love that you offer freely to the entire world. Would you help us love everyone we meet just like you love them through your power and your strength. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Now we're going to invite you to stand as we sing and we worship and we acknowledge that how much we love this God. I don't know about you, but I need Jesus every day. For the benediction, I just wanted to give two quick announcements. And on Wednesday night, we're going to be starting a new kind of series over the summer looking at the spiritual disciplines. Um, or just different spiritual practices and things that are meant to be rhythms in our lives. So if you haven't come before on Wednesday or if you're going to be traveling a bit, I'd encourage you to be there. It's going to be focused on one kind of each week. So don't feel like if you miss a week, you, you're out and you can't be there. We'd love to have you. Um, also, we're going to be starting a new sermon series next week on the book of Psalms. Um, we're not going to go through all 150 psalms. Don't worry, someone is scared about that. Um, we're just going to look at a couple psalms in June and how they, the psalms teach us how to pray. And so I'm excited to get in with that with you. So our benediction from the book of 1 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.